loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired to create a deeper life to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Charles Garfield. Dr. Garfield's been recognized internationally as the founder of the Shanti Project. For over 40 years, he's pioneered the development of service-oriented volunteer organizations and the training of volunteers and health professionals in a wide variety of applications. For his work with Shanti and for originating the Shanti model of peer support, Dr. Garfield was named National Activist of the Year, one of America's highest awards to individuals making voluntary contributions in public service. For over four decades, Dr. Garfield served as clinical professor of psychology in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of California School of Medicine in San Francisco. He's the author of 12 books, most recently, The Widely Respected Life's Last Gift, Giving and Receiving Peace When a Loved One is Dying. He's currently a research scholar at the Star King School of the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley. Welcome, Charles. Well, thank you. Good to have you, and thank you for the book. Um, it's, of course, you know, something I think about a lot, how to, uh, having had 10 years with my wife to make the best out of the end of life, because she was always about to die, even though she didn't do it, um, I, I just really appreciate the um, under underlying theme that we can make so much out of those times when we're uh, up against losing somebody. So uh, thanks so much. Well, it, it, I guess you, it, you'd say it was my pleasure to do it. It was a contribution. It was a, a legacy. It was a labor of love. And as you were saying, it was uh, absolutely necessary for many of us going through the experience. Absolutely. And let's talk about that a little bit, kind of. I've, I've given the bare bones to the listeners about what you've done, but of course, uh, having been in the Bay Area this whole time that you have uh, have been, um, I, I know how instrumental you were in offering psychological support, basically, to people, especially during uh, the AIDS epidemic here, which, which of course, was... Uh, those of us that were part of that community were immersed in in deaths. So can you give a little background on how you came to be doing that work? What what brought you to it? Absolutely. You know, Shanti Project originally was a cancer program. It dealt with cancer patients before there ever was an AIDS epidemic. And then in uh, 1981, when the epidemic first was acknowledged nationally, we had a choice. We could either stay with our cancer work although there were other organizations doing that, or we could switch to this new illness. And uh, I'm extremely proud of the fact that Shanti switched its emphasis, and we switched our emphasis to work with people with this new disease called AIDS. And all these years later, so many years later, uh, Shanti is still going strong, still taking care of people with AIDS, 
and now has already uh, also switched back to taking care of women with all forms of cancer. So we're uh, we're doing both now. But the the AIDS work really was an amazing time, and, and it's important not to view it as history, not not just history. Uh, there are people now who are dealing with AIDS. It's still an illness that needs to be uh, addressed, and people need to be taken care of. Uh, for for yes. every person with yes. resources, perhaps like you or me, who can get the help we need, there are many people who are marginalized in society who have the disease, who are going through the experience of AIDS, who don't have those resources. And Shanti is taking care of many of them right now. That's so important. I've done some speaking about LGBTQ end of life. And in doing the research to expand my knowledge, of course, I had some knowledge because of being a member of that community. But to expand my knowledge, I did uh, quite a bit of research. And um, something I just didn't realize at all is the the, uh, incredible number of particularly men who lost their communities who are now alone and facing, uh, you know, perhaps HIV positive, but they lived and now facing um, end of life uh, alone and having trouble getting resources. So I really appreciate that that's still, that Shanti is still a resource that's available that that is not expensive because so many resources to support people are. That's exactly the truth. In fact, we have uh, a number of programs that address precisely the issue that you mentioned. Imagine going through a life experience where all of your friends died, where virtually everybody you are close to in your friendship circle was gone, you're dealing, you're still dealing with an illness, but you're okay, you're living, you have a chronic illness, you're not dying, and you need the resources necessary to get through all of that. Who do you turn mm-hmm. to? What in the world do you do? And that's, that's where Shanti comes in, and it's it's been an amazing resource in the lives of Many, many people. Yes, and, you know, I, I think of myself a little bit. So my wife died after a 10-year illness. Uh, that was not just a terrible experience. It was a learning experience. And when we talk about your book in a minute, I know you, I know you have a similar um, idea that that can be so such a growthful time. But um, that being said, I remember how hard it was to give my heart again. Um, I was young and I did do that, but I'm, I, I was trying to imagine as, as I was thinking about this, if you'd lost person after person after person after person after person, I, I imagine some people never opened up in that way again and so did not reform community. Is that true in your, in your experience? Yes, people had a lot of trouble trusting that life would be fair trusting that bad things wouldn't happen to them. Uh, that it, it became a real challenge for many of these folks to give over their, their heart and soul to another human being because of what happened to them. And one of the values that Shanti provides is that kind of loving support outside a personal relationship, outside a, a love relationship. Uh, just a f- more like a friendship connection. And that's the first step back toward 
healing. You know, the, the key, the key term in the book is love heals, kindness heals, and that's one of the things that we attempt to provide people who have been hurt in some very severe ways. You know, there's a piece of your book that, that ties right in with that. I wonder if you'd share it, um, the, the uh, little section about um, looking at the person who's, who's at the end of their, or their life through the eyes of love. Could you share that? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, can, can you view the person that you're caring about in a loving fashion? We, so, so much of what we hear about in healthcare, in human services, is to be a service provider. It sounds mechanical. It sounds mm-hmm. very rote. Uh, it sounds like uh, you just provide services, but not yourself. Um, what we're trying to say is that if you look through the eyes of love at this person and you allow yourself to feel deeply the notion that you can care for this human being who's suffering, and that's, in fact, your caring for them may be the difference between zero and one, between having one person who really cares and feels love for this person who's going through the crisis and having absolutely nobody. No one, yes. By looking through the eyes of love at that person, you can make all the difference in their life. Um, I'm I'm thinking right at this moment about a a book called uh, Leaning into Love. It's by a woman named Elaine Mansfield. She's been on the show. And uh, her husband was dying of cancer. And the... uh, care providers, the doctor, the intern, a whole room full of people were doing just what you're saying. They were um, they were doing their job, but there was no compassion. They were there was almost an unkindness, a coldness. And he uh, told her to read them the poem Kindness by Naomi Shihab Nye. Uh, yeah. If people haven't heard that poem, go look it up. It's a beautiful poem. Anyway, he'd entirely changed the course of what was happening in the room uh, just by people being reminded that, that he was a human who needed kindness. Uh, I, I just think it's so such a major, major concept. It is, and, you know, there are many stories that I wrote about in Life's Last Gift in the book that really talk to that issue of giving people permission, giving healthcare people permission to feel deeply, to be caring, to be loving. They're often afraid to go into all of that pain and suffering because they think that they'll get overwhelmed by it, that they'll be so hurt and so burnt out after a while that they won't be able to do their work. The, the truth of the matter is you can be energized by that kind of love and affection. Uh, the word compassion really comes to mind. Compassion means to close the distance between your world and the other person's world, to get closer through empathy, to get closer and closer to what they're actually experiencing, and allow yourself to ask the question, what would it be like for me if I were in the same situation? And uh, to allow yourself to do that, for healthcare people to allow themselves to do that is to bring them closer to the role of a Shanti volunteer. That's what we teach in the training six times a year. We have trainings for Shanti volunteers, and that's essentially what we teach them. We teach them that love heals, 
that you can you can feel that love and kindness for another human being, and it won't overwhelm you. In fact, it'll energize you. It may be some of the most important experiences you ever have. You know, there's a little uh, piece of this of this part of your book I was thinking about, uh, where you say love can enable the dying and us to heal ancient hurts expressed in ways large and small. It allows us to move past fear, isolation, and any lingering sense of guilt, shame, or blame to reach a place of peace. Um, that that idea that we are engaging with someone uh, at the end of their life not just in hopes of making it a healing experience for them, but in hopes of making it a healing experience for everybody. Uh, I remember once when I was, yeah, I remember once when I was with Stephen Levine and he said, you know, um, you know, when a death has, has um, been that kind of death when everyone involved is healed. And, uh, yeah, so not to see ourselves as other, that we're, we're all engaged to, together, yes? Absolutely. You know, the, the notion that the healing goes all the way around, that it's not just, the, you, can, you can heal somebody emotionally, you can heal somebody psychologically and spiritually and interpersonally, even if you don't heal them physically. But the people we're talking about who are healed are not just the person with the illness, that in fact... Um, Many of the Shanti volunteers and many of the people who do this work from the heart understand that they themselves are healed in the process, that, uh, that it can be a, a mutual connection all the way around in terms of what the healing uh, situation affords. And I guess I would say, of course, this is, in a sense, the heart of, the, of my radio program here, that, um, yes, there's grief with loss and and. Um, death and other kinds of losses, and sometimes transformation, because that was certainly my experience, and and has been other times since. With my uh, since my wife died, my parents have died, many friends have died, um, and and there's always that. If you're really present with it, it does change you in ways that are unexpected and beautiful, I think, regardless of the fact that it's also painful. Yeah, I think that the two things come together, Cheryl. It's the pain the pain comes with the with the beauty of it, with the with the nourishment of it. That you can you can't have one without the other. Um I went through the same kinds of things, you know, uh, my best friend died and both my parents died and I probably learned more from those experiences than anything I ever learned in school about how to really care for somebody. What does it mm. really mean to open yourself wide to the suffering of another human being, to allow yourself to feel your own suffering? Um, you know, the, the reason I called the book Life's Last Gift was precisely that, that it really is life's last gift, that the person who's leaving leaves you with that one absolutely marvelous gift that love heals and it heals all concerned. You know, I was wondering I was, as I was reading, the implication to me in the book was that those losses of your friend and your parents were after you were already working in this field. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. And so then it caused me to wonder what led you in that direction to, uh, to decide to actively go after opening your heart wide 
because, of course, many, many people come to the kind of work you and I do because they've already had a, an experience of deep loss. Uh, I don't know. Is that true for you uh, with some loss I don't know about? Or did it just come about by happenstance? I'm really curious about that. Yeah, it's, it's a wonderful question. Um, although my grandparents had died prior to my starting to do the work, I really think that my attraction to it is a desire to care for people, that there was a part of me that wanted to use the skills I had learned as a psychologist to benefit human beings in ways that were really obvious. And when I first started work at the Cancer Institute at the University of California Medical School, I saw at the cancer, at the cancer unit I saw all sorts of people who were hurting deeply, and I knew I had a choice. I could ignore it, or I could move into it. And I asked myself the question, what if it were me? What would I need? And I realized very quickly that I would need the connection with another human being, that something had to deal with the loneliness and the pain and suffering and the fear and it was just a part of me that activated empathy. Um, mm. I guess I've always been somewhat empathic as a human being. That I can feel other people's feelings in a way that allows me to understand more about what they're going through. And I just wanted to keep doing the work because it allowed me to do work that was meaningful and work that made a difference in the lives of people who were suffering. Um, but the question I thought you were going to ask was, what did you learn from caring for your parents and your best friend that you didn't know before? Because I had yes, I was planning. On, I was planning on asking that eventually, for sure. <laughs> well, for you know, sure. Let's get started on that now. <laughs> There's nothing like going through the death of somebody really close to you to open you up even more than you've been opened up before. But my, my heart was was ripped open when my best friend and my parents were dying. It was I learned more from those situations than anything else I ever went through in my life. And I wanted to use what I learned about empathy, about listening from the heart, about speaking from the heart, about acting from the heart, about the importance of listening to people's stories, about making memories with them about their life review and their legacy and all sorts of other things that were important. I wanted to use that that I learned with my parents and best friend. I wanted to use those lessons to help other people, to help people who are going through it. And it it deepened my understanding in major ways. That's a great place for us to take our first break. But, of course, I want to talk about that more uh, when we come back, uh, I really I resonate so much with that because I was a counselor. I was training to be a counselor before my wife's illness, but nothing has taught me so much as that did, uh, as going through that with her, someone I loved so much. So I, I resonate with what you're saying quite a bit. Let's just continue with that when we come back. And listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. Um, please connect with me in any way that is 
is preferable to you. And there's also a link to my novel, An Ocean Between Them, uh, actually about a mother and daughter finding their way back to each other at the end of life. So it's a very relevant book to the topic we're talking about today. And to find Dr. Garfield, you can go to charlesgarfield.com. Be back soon. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Have you stopped to think seriously about hypnosis? Hypnosis can set you on your way to better health, can free you from anxiety, phobias, and so much more. Join host Inez Simpson for Hypnosis Everywhere. Inez Simpson and the Simpson Protocol. This show is for anyone from the experienced hypnotist practitioner to the merely curious. Inez Simpson offers tools and insights from the whole world of hypnosis with guests and open discussions. Hypnosis Everywhere. The Simpson Protocol airs live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health & Wellness. What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I've been talking with Dr. Charles Garfield about his book, Life's Last Last Gift. And Charles, before the break, um, we were talking about how different it is uh, in certain ways, uh, you know, how big the, the learning is when the person in the bed is someone you're extremely close to. Um, I, I know that in every aspect of of work that I participate in at end of life I'm a grief counselor I work at the Women's Cancer Resource Center doing groups you know a lot of things that I do actually refer to losing someone extremely close to me it's hard for me to picture the work being the same if that hadn't happened um 
And you had a, a huge head start, obviously, because you'd worked with so many people you became close to, um, you know, before these very intimate people in your life died. But can you talk a little more about what changed for you when that person in the bed was your, um, you know, precious loved one, I guess? Absolutely. I think the bottom line is that I hurt more. The suffering was more acute. It was deeper. And mm. the other part of it was that I learned more. I learned, I, I learned more about what people actually needed. I wanted so badly to care for my mother, my father, my closest friend. I wanted to be useful to them. And I knew they were going through very difficult times. And I opened my heart much more widely in order to understand and empathize with what it was they were experiencing. I knew that the greatest danger was to close down, was to shut down, was to try to uh, wall off the experience. And fortunately, I knew from my own previous work that walling it off would have been um, a tremendous blow to them. That if, Imagine if the person that you thought was going to be there for you during your toughest times was not there, and I vowed that I was not going to do that, that no matter how rough it got, I was, I was going to be a partner on the journey. I was going to be there for them no matter what happened. And I realized that that's really what it was, that it was uh, a partnership, that I was going to, go, I was going to travel with them on this journey as, as, as far as I could go, as far as we could go together. And uh, I think that, that opening of the heart, much more obviously and deeply than it had ever been opened before was what my experience was with my parents and best friend. You know, I think that does intersect too with idea an idea I have about grief. Maybe it's only for myself, but the thing that's least tolerable to me in grief, I can I can be with all the feelings. I've learned how to do that and allow it to happen. I, I struggle if I feel regret. And I find that people who've held back from what you're talking about frequently have more regret. Absolutely. And so it's it it's also a kind of gift we give to ourselves too, isn't it? Um, for us as grievers, because it hurts. But uh, it to me, gr- grief is a lot more simple. If I'm not thinking, why didn't I do this or that, or you know. Uh, I'd love to share a little it'll, a little place from your book uh, about your mom's um, end of life because I think it really intersects with what we're talking about. It says, next morning I met with the hospice nurse who said that mom's labored breathing indicated that her remaining time was down to a matter of days, possibly hours. When I entered mom's room, she was awake Strains of her beloved Beethoven issuing from a CD player. Our moms had some stuff in common. (laughs) I wish I could get you a birthday present, she said by way of greeting. I don't think it's possible under the circumstances. You're my present, Mom, I told her, touched that she'd been thinking about me. Maybe you could sing happy birthday to me like in old days. That would be a treat. I'll do my best, she said. I'll do my best. The piece that was playing... Violin Romance Number no. 2 sounded to me like a funeral dirge. The sonata that followed was no more cheerful. Spirits plumb- plummeting, I sat through increasingly mournful depths of Beethoven. 
Lying very still, mom seemed content to grip my fingers. I morbidly tracked the pulse in her neck. Several times, when she closed her eyes for longer intervals, I began to cry. Who's holding home here, I wondered. The opening measures of Moonlight Sonata sounded. I remembered her playing it so beautifully long ago in Brooklyn. Had she chosen Beethoven to revisit those times? There was too much not knowing involved with life's end, I reflected. Far too many things left shrouded in mystery. I did know one thing. Mom's stroke brought an intimacy between us that I'd longed for. The I love yous and everything else that we had shared formed a kind of balm for my psyche. I could hardly conceive of losing her after finally experiencing these depths, yet now I felt certain that we would be eternally connected. Why did such profound enrichment often come only at the end of earthly life? One thing I I wanted your thoughts on about that is, uh, do you think, you know, there's a lot out there, for instance, Stephen Levine's book, One Year to Live, about um, not for dying people, you know, for living people hoping to have this kind of experience with their loved ones that often comes at at end of life um, or when life is threatened in some way. Uh, I wonder if there are ways to push ourselves to have those experiences uh, when there is no threat to life, or if you think that is kind of a uh, a, a secret sauce, special ingredient somehow. Uh, how do you see that? I think you can have those experiences earlier than the end of life, but you have to know that they're available to you. You have to know what they are. Um, People are often surprised at the end of life by how close they got to people, um, how close they allowed themselves to get these loving experiences. Uh, but you have to know that they exist in order to have them. And uh, I think what I was most surprised about with my mother and what shocked me to tell you the truth, even as I listened to you read the story, was that it it had to come at the end, and why couldn't it have come earlier? Why couldn't we have been closer earlier? She was busy with her life. I was busy with my life. And we never even said I love you to one another until near the end, until I started saying it to her. And mm. she got so excited that she wanted to say it back to me. Mm. We, people don't know. They don't, they don't realize that this kind of depth of intimacy, this depth of connection and love, is available to them earlier. Maybe they feel embarrassed to say it. Maybe nobody in their family ever said it before. Maybe you can be the first one to say it. But to take the risk of being the first to offer intimacy, to offer connection, to say those I love yous, and to say them way before the end of life would be a great gift to almost everybody. Yes. I wonder, too, though... um, For instance, I'll talk about my mother as an example. Uh, She really wanted closeness, but she was very guarded about it. And there's a sense in which at the she died of pancreatic cancer about nine months after diagnosis. So she had that period of time, uh, which I think is critical. Um, My dad died suddenly, so that's a whole different, you know, experience for sure. But uh, I sort of felt as if it 
it was safer for her to let closeness happen because um, she wasn't going to, I, I, I'm trying to think of a, of a compassionate way to say this. She wasn't going to have a keep it up forever. Uh, you know, it scared her. And, uh, but it, it didn't scare her as much in that period, knowing that it was the end of her life. Uh, um, that's not well put, but I think that does happen for people that it just feels threatening to have people um, in your heart that way for many folks. I think it feels threatening, Cheryl, because they're afraid that it won't be reciprocated, that the other person won't reciprocate and also mm-hmm. express the love, that it's a risk. That's what I was saying before about risk-taking. It's a risk to be the first one to say, I love you, if you think that no, if nobody's ever said it before and you think that it might, be, it might not be reciprocated and the person might not say it back to you. But what's the, ask yourself the question, what's the worst thing that could possibly happen? The worst thing that could possibly happen if you said I love you to somebody is that they'll dismiss it. That they'll say, oh, that's nice, but not, not really mean it. Um, not really mean it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not really, not really reciprocate in kind and, and say I love you also in a way that sounds real. Um, so that, that's okay. And, you know, it, it, it doesn't feel good necessarily, but... But you said it well before when you said regrets. You don't want to be the person who didn't say I love you and to regret that. The number of times I've heard from people after their loved one died, and I ask, How is, what, are your, what are your primary memories? What do you remember most? One of the things they say is, I feel terrible that I never said I love you. Um, so we, we don't want to leave ourselves with that, do we? You can, you can, you can rid yourself of that. Uh, regret if you take the risk. Make sure you're the person who says I love you and say it more than once. Say it like you mean it. Feel it as deeply as you can feel it. Yeah, I I had a a client once who in their family no one said I love you and in the course of his work he realized that he needed to say I love you to his mother. Um, but he had to work very hard at it. It took a long time because it was such a prohibition in his family. And he finally did it. And then he um, made a commitment. It took a lot of courage on his part to continue to say it. And she didn't say it back for quite a long time. But finally, she did. She said it back, and every time they would say goodbye to each other on the phone, they would both say they loved each other, and it was an incredibly um, connective experience for him, and I, I believe for her as well, uh, to break yeah, that it's prohibition. A, it's a lovely story, Cheryl. It's a, I've, I've been involved in many, many situations where people have told me that, that kind of story that it took a long time, that they had to take the risk, but it was the, the most important thing they ever did. Yeah. Um, I think your book goes quite deeply into how to do these things. We've been talking basically about um, being able to say I love you and the importance of that. But the other principles that you talk about in the book to me, are ways towards that 
uh, are ways of communicating that uh, deeply between people. And I, I'm just going to read the names of your chapters because I, I think that's a good start on talking about the different ways you describe being able to make that that kind of connection that is basically love. Um, I will listen from the heart. I will speak from the heart. I will act from the heart. I will treat you with empathy. I will value small acts of kindness. I will listen to your stories. I will use my pain to connect with you. I will allow love to sustain and heal us both. And I will accompany you as far as we can go together. Uh, to me, that that really captures experiences I've had that lead to the, that sense of, that lead to the words, I love you, but also that lead to the deep experience of being in love with someone. Yeah, well, it, it, it's interesting you should say it that way. Uh, one of the feed. One of the pieces of feedback that I get on the book that I never imagined, never never occurred to me that it would happen. People say they'd read the book, they'd read Life's Last Gift, and they'd say, you know, a lot of these commitments that you just, the ones you just read, Cheryl, uh, people would say, a lot of these are things that I can use outside of the end of life. I can use them in, in, in my own relationship, and nobody's going through a life-threatening illness. If I listen from the heart and speak from the heart, act from the heart, I listen to people's stories, small acts of kindness, um, and all of the rest of those commitments. Um, they're useful in the rest of life also. And I was delighted to hear that people took it that way because I wanted the book to be as useful as it could possibly be. And I'm, as I said earlier, astounded by the national response to the book. It's been extraordinary. I, I think it I, I think it does um, hit a chord uh, because you know there's there's a girl I know from doing this show and you probably know from your work there's just so much more uh, openness to the subject of of loss and grief and end of life there's so much more talk going on and so many more things um, out there right. And so now, if we're going to be paying attention to the end of life, then we're going to be looking for what's going to help us do it the best we can, right? Um, because uh, for me anyway, feeling I have some tools is is very helpful when doing something I've never done before. Um, so, uh, you know, I can imagine... Um, you know, it's a map. It's not. It's not the territory, but it's a good map. The things that you've laid out. Let's let's come back to that after the break more more thoroughly because uh, I'm particularly focused on hearing from you how you define from the heart. Uh, you you lay it out well in the book, and I have some ideas too. So let's come back to that after the break, and listeners. Uh, again, you can go to the Good Grief page, host page at Voice America to find me. You could also go to my website, weatheringgrief.com, and you can find Dr. Garfield at charlesgarfield.com. Back soon. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
Ready to transform your health and your world? Join host Melissa Alexander for Insight Living with Vitality. Melissa and her guests go behind the scenes on what it takes for practitioners and clients to transform themselves and others. She provides insight to medical procedural breakthroughs, available product resources, and explains lifestyle choices designed to improve and expand your vitality. It's time to get rid of that baggage, remove those blockages, and prevent buildup from hindering your progress in life. Tune in every Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Healthcare has been a major part of news stories today with one thing that has been consistent inconsistency. Both healthcare providers and patients have to work around and get used to a constantly changing set of rules and issues. Nurses have historically been left out of this decision making. Listen to Once a Nurse, Always a Nurse. Exploring the world of nursing with host Leanne Meyer. Health professionals, we invite you to share your ideas and experiences while listening to experts in various areas of nursing. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health and Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I've been speaking with Dr. Charles Garfield, author of Life's Last Gift. And before the break, Charles, we were, I was telling you I'd really like to hear more, hear from you directly about the expression from the heart. Um, several of your, the commitments that you have chapters on in the, in the, in the book end that way. And even the ones that don't, uh, you, you couldn't do those things like treating someone with empathy or giving them small acts of kindness, you know, listening to their, without being kind of from the heart, from my view. So it seems very central. Can you talk about what, what, how you think of that and um, what that experience is in your world? Absolutely. It's probably the most critical phrase in the whole book, from the heart. What does it actually mean? It means feeling deeply what it is you believe the other person is going through. Actually allowing yourself to feel deeply. The word empathy is used a lot, and I use it in one of the chapters. 
but it's allowing yourself to feel deeply. For instance, listening from the heart means actually listening to the person deeply, not paying attention to the, the, the time or, or what you're having for lunch or where you're going next. To actually hold the other person as if they were the focus of a meditation, to really listen from the heart. To speak from the heart is to allow yourself to give to the other person what it is you believe to be true, what you feel deeply is, is a truth that would be useful to them, that would be helpful to them, that would be interesting to them. And to act from the heart are all those oh, thousands of actions that you can take that you believe will benefit the person. It's like when you give somebody a present, is it from the heart? Is it an act from the heart? Um, do you really think it through, or is it just something nice that you that you come up with quickly but don't really think through. From the heart means to feel deeply what it is the other person is experiencing as best you can and to listen and to, to speak and to act from the heart in a way that allows that feeling, that deep feeling, to inform all of your actions. You know, I, I'm not sure exactly why, maybe just because we're talking about uh, hearts right now, but I'm I'm very loudly hearing uh, Stephen Levine in my mind right now, with whom I spent a great deal of time uh, when my wife was ill, who said, uh, in the course of a weekend, probably said this, you know, 10 times or so, I don't know, a broken heart is an open heart. Um and it occurs to me that you can speak, listen, do all these things from the heart if you allow your heart to break, because that is a part of it, um, that if you're going to open your heart to someone who who is dying in particular, uh, it will hurt. It will break your heart. Uh, but there's there's a kind of heart. openness. It, it'll break you open. Um but it's required how, for that. That's how the light gets through. When the heart breaks, that's how the light gets through. It's through that Absolutely. In, the, in the broken heart that the awareness comes for what the other person needs, what they're experiencing, what they're feeling. A broken heart allows the light to get through, the awareness to get through. That's so true. You know, that phrase is... is um, Quoted a lot, heard a lot. Um, I happen to be a big Leonard Cohen lover, uh, <laughs> lover of his poetry. And um, so I hear it. I've heard it all my life, really, all my adult life. But the, but the meaning for me keeps deepening. Uh, the idea that the, the way to be human, the way to really connect, involves allowing our hearts to break. That's... that's uh, the world could use more of that right now, I think. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the, the word empathy is used a lot to describe it. The word, you know, if, if my heart breaks when I listen to your story, if my heart opens and breaks, uh, like I keep saying, that's how the light gets through. That's how I really understand what it is you're going through. And that's mm-hmm. how I, that, that will inform what I do and what I say. You know, in a way, we're talking about how we really form human community, even if it's a community of two. And I want to share um, this, what 
what this month, because Notre Dame has burned, um, is quite a a heart-wrenching, heartbreaking story, but so beautiful uh, from your book. Uh, Let me just share it and then we can talk more about it. One of my most profound teachers was a man I didn't know was dying, a stranger who shared his story with me. I'd gone to Paris at a confused moment of my life, feeling lost, and taken myself to the Cathedral of Notre Dame, hoping for inspiration. I sat waiting for a long while, but the clarity I needed eluded me, and I got up to leave, discouraged. As I walked through the heavy doors onto the cathedral steps, I passed a man in tattered clothes who smiled and extended his hand as I greeted him. Did you find what you wanted inside? I asked him. He studied me for a moment, then said in heavily accented English that he'd first traveled to Paris many years ago, fleeing from a tragedy in his life. I wanted God or Mary to tell me why I should continue to live, he said. For weeks he'd prayed daily at Notre Dame, but received no reply. I was lonelier than ever and wanted to die. His money almost gone, he decided to stand outside the cathedral and ask people for help. That first day, a kindly nun brought him food and said she would pray for him. She was my first friend, and she returned many times. The next day, a boy gave him a few coins and later brought him food. A few weeks passed, and one evening, as he'd sat nearly alone inside the cathedral, the south rose window began to glow, and a wave of joy took possession of him. I heard a voice that seemed to come from inside and outside of me at once, he said. It was the voice of God. Continue to pray and to meet new friends, he instructed. Soon I will come to you. He held my eyes, smiling. Would you like to know what happened? I nodded. Nothing. He laughed at my expression. Nothing at all, except that each day someone has spoken to me as a friend, just as you did. I laughed, too. How long have you been out here? Nearly 30 years, he said. I will stay as long as I live. Each morning before the people arrive and each night after they live, leave, the fathers allow me into the cathedral to pray for the good fortune of all my friends. His warm voice lingered on the final word. I asked if he still felt lonely. No, I have no reason to be, he said. I talk with God each day, and when I gaze into the eyes of a friend, I know that it's God looking back at me. Yes, my friend, he said, we are all faces of God especially when we speak with open hearts to people who are troubled and alone. Then it is God speaking to God. I probably get more responses to that story, Cheryl, than anything else. Well, it's a, it's a magnificent experience to have had. And it, I've, I've been there once um, to that, to that uh, cathedral, and I'm not religious. I guess I'd say I'm very spiritual, but not religious. And um, it was very powerful experience to be there. Um, and it and it it is sort of captured by that story. I feel there was something um, kind of beyond every day about being there. Absolutely, I had the same experience. I've been there probably a dozen times, and. I'm not Catholic, 
And I'm not religious, although I am a spiritual person. But there's something about that place, that sacred place, um, that the Greeks, the ancient Greeks used to call temenos, a, a word for sacred space. There's something that really moves me there. And I keep coming back, hoping that I'll keep finding it. And each time I'm there, I, I find the same thing. And you know where else I find it? I find it at the bedsides of dying people. I mm. find that, that same feeling of sacredness, that this human being is allowing me to spend a little of their precious time. They have so little of it left, and they're allowing me to spend a little of the time that they have left with them um, is a, a sacred kind of uh, connection that we have. Um, and and I, I feel the same thing when I'm in Notre Dame, that there's something very sacred about being there. You know, when the when the fire happened, I guess it may be about two weeks ago now, um, I had so many different thoughts about it and feelings about it. But one one thing t- that came to my mind is um, the 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 fact of living is that uh, things end, right? <laughs> um, that we have them for now and we don't have them forever. And I had this incredible urge, I don't believe I'll be able to do this, but I had this incredible urge to go there while the spire is down, you know, um, because it's still it's still there and changed by being uh, impermanent like everything else. it It really captured me for a few a few days. And I, I'm assuming this person that you met there, probably ha- is not alive any longer. Would you assume that? Yeah, um, but still a part of that place, both because you told the story and because um, he put all those years of energy into it in, so- uh, in some way. It was a, yeah, it, there, there's a kind of um, lasting legacy of that story and that person's life. Think of all the people he met over 30-some-odd years of being there who uh, he connected with, and not just me, but all sorts of other people he connected with. And that's his legacy. That's the legacy he leaves. People, people tell the story about the man that they met at Notre Dame. And including you, who now has... has uh used your experience to give people an idea of what it's like to connect in that way and what the potential is for us as human beings that of course we do often experience at end of life but we have moments of it at other times too don't we that that's the potential of human beings yes you're right it's it's a potential of human beings and it's not just at the end of life the end of life is a sacred space in which it's most likely to happen, that kind of deep, deep connection. But it doesn't have to happen at the end of life. It can happen at any point in life. It's available to us as a potential at any moment if we just avail ourselves of it. That's one of the things that I hope that the life's last gift gives people, the, the permission to open their hearts at any point. Isn't it interesting that just this hour of conversation about doing that uh, leaves me with a feeling of having just experienced it? I love that it. I think 
if, if we connect, if one person and another person connect, there is that in it, isn't there? Yes, absolutely. Um, it, there's something about the connection that's sacred and that's, that leaves one with the memory of a memory trace of it um, so that you never forget it. Well, perhaps we'll, given that we live so near each other, we'll even connect in person someday. I've, I've really enjoyed this, this hour with you very much. And um, I, can, I understand completely why your book is getting a good reception because it opens up that place in us that allows for connection. And I think we all want that, don't we? Absolutely. Deep it's, inside. It's, whether you realize it or not, it's a deep desire of all humans. Thanks so much for being here today. My pleasure, Cheryl. Thank you. And you can find Dr. Garfield at charlesgarfield.com. Next week, I'll have Gabrielle Jimenez, whose book, Soft Landing, chronicles her experiences finding her calling as a hospice nurse and shares some of the experiences she's had with her patients. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.